I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history through conversations with best-selling authors. Today, I'm interviewing David Rubenstein, one of our nation's greatest thought leaders, about his new book, The American Experiment, Dialogues on a Dream, that came out September 7, 2021. And we did the interview in front of a virtual audience on November 18th. Enjoy. Uh, another great opportunity to spend time with my friend David Rubenstein. His third spectacular book, uh, The American Experiment, came out recently. Uh, New York Times bestseller, as all of David's books are. David Rubenstein to this group really needs no introduction, but real briefly, the, the, the founder and co-chair of the Carlisle Group, one of the leading private equity uh, companies in the world. But uh, more importantly for us, David is the leading uh, patriotic philanthropist uh, who is currently the head of the Kennedy Center, the head of the Council on Foreign Relations, the former head of the Smithsonian uh, who helped restore the Washington Monument, the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial, uh, and uh, many others. So, uh, David, welcome welcome to our program this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Good. Uh, well, David, let's uh, start with, with your book, and obviously books start with introductions. Uh, you say in your introduction that in the 230-plus years of the American experiment, You've identified 13 essential factors, which you call genes, G-E-N-E-S, that were indispensable to producing and sustaining America and have allowed the American experiment to blossom. And among the 13 are things like democracy, voting, equality, the rule of law, capitalism, immigration, diversity, and six others. What was your process for choosing the 13 most essential? Well, the point I was trying to make is that every country has its own distinct characteristics or genes, just as everybody watching here has their own genes that came from their parents and then their grandparents. Our country has its own genes that came from in a way that country came together from our founders and all the other influences that uh, brought this country together. So if you were to go to Germany or Turkey or Mongolia or Madagascar, whatever country you might pick, that country will have its own genes that make it distinct from somebody else, some other country. So my point was that we have certain characteristics that I call genes that make us relatively unique. And those were the ones that you just mentioned. Um, how did I pick them? Well, you know, I, I guess I could have had 50 genes as well, but I tried to pick at a reasonable number. 13 uh, seemed like uh, we had 13 colonies at the beginning, so maybe 13 is a good, good number for us. Well, Almost everybody who's zooming in is going to get a copy of, of your wonderful book. And, and your introduction is, is 15 pages long. And you write about three paragraphs about each of the 13. And for everybody who gets this book, if you read nothing else, please read the introduction. It should be a standard reading in all uh, American uh, civics classes at all levels of, of education. David, uh, Let's talk about your process. When it comes time to write the introduction, do you do that as the last thing before the book goes to the publisher? Do you do it as the first thing to kind of organize your thoughts on the book? How do you do that? 
Well, um, what I do is I start interviewing people and then figure out uh, how it's going to be put together. But um, throughout the process, I, I have some ideas about what I'm trying to write, and, and I might outline the uh, introduction. But in the end, I, I after I complete the interviews, I you know then write the introduction. And that, as you probably know from your own books, takes some time because, uh, as you know, some people may only read the introduction. You know, if the book's not that good, they may not get past the introduction. So you have to make sure the introduction is actually uh, going to excite people. It's like an appetizer. Uh, the appetizer is designed to whet your appetite for a bigger meal. The introduction is the same thing. It's designed to whet your appetite for the rest of the book. Hopefully it works. Well, it definitely works. In fact, it's so tight that I wonder how many drafts do you typically go through before you're satisfied? This one had about 30 some drafts. Um, as you know, probably know, when you're writing, um, when you write something, you think it's perfect. And then when you go back the next day and you look at it, you say, how could I have been so stupid to write something like this? <laughs> so you have to tear it up and start all over again. And then only by the publisher's date saying you've got to get it in by a final date, do you finally realize you can't you know, play with it anymore. So you turn it in. Um, so, uh, But you know, in the end, all of you who are listening know that writing is a, a creative process. It's very enjoyable, um, but it can be frustrating as well. Um, there's a lot of reason why I guess a, you know a lot of people who write uh, are, are, are uh, frustrated because it, it can be very lonely and very difficult. And um, you know sometimes you see people like Ernest Hemingway or Edgar Allan Poe. I'm not neither of them, but they spend a lot of their time drinking rather than uh, than writing because it can it can drive you to drink. Well, you called the uh, the book's first section the promise and the principle. And you open it with the preamble to the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, was written by Thomas Jefferson. Many people have called it the American Creed, the one that has the words, all men are created equal, that we have certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and that government gets its power from the consent of the governed. So, David, what goes through your mind? After a lifetime of experience, a deep with each year, a deeper appreciation for the country and our history. Go, what goes through your mind whenever you read or someone reads aloud the, the Declaration's preamble to you? Well, for those who may not have heard me talk about this before, I, uh, I, I just wanted to emphasize what this is all about. When Thomas Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, which he did in about three days, it was then edited by the uh, Second Continental Congress before it was made public. They made about 60 some changes to his basic document. But the part that they didn't really um, amend very much was the part that we now regard as the most important. And it is in fact the most, uh, I would say famous sentence in the English language, the one you just read. We hold these truths to be self-evident. At the time the declaration was written, the sins of King George was really what they spent most of their time on. And there were debate, debate back and forth about what those sins were. And then the, the ultimate conclusion that they're gonna separate from England, that was the, the real uh, important part of the declaration. The preamble was ignored. But in recent, I would say years, uh, it has been seen as the creed of our country, as you described, because it basically embodies what the country theoretically is about. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Now, we know that Thomas Jefferson was a slave owner, as were many people at the, uh, at the Continental Congress. We also know that even after um, we ended the Civil War um, and the slaves were freed, we don't really have complete equality 
what Thomas Jefferson was really saying is all white property Christian men are to be created equal. But even they weren't equal because they didn't really trust them to vote. They created the electoral college so that people couldn't really vote in, in a direct way. And they created a way for the, the state legislatures to elect senators. So even then they didn't really treat everybody equally. But nonetheless, and since, since uh, probably the time of Abraham Lincoln on, we've regarded this creed, this sentence as what the country is striving for. And my book is about how the experiment of trying to create a representative democracy uh, using this sentence as the creed has evolved over 250 years. Clearly we haven't done it perfectly, but done it better than probably anybody else. The idea of creating a country out of whole cloth and making it a representative democracy was an experiment. Thomas Jefferson, uh, as you know, Talmadge, uh, probably thought it would last 20 years. In fact, he didn't think we should have any government that lasted more than 20 years. Ultimately, it lasted as long as we have now had it, about almost 250 years. But in the end, that sentence is probably the sentence that more people around the rest of the world who know something about English can cite that one sentence more than any other sentence in the English language. Right. Now, your first interview is with Jill Lepore, who is a Harvard professor. He's written several great books on American history, including one called These Truths, A Comprehensive History of the United States. And one of her truths that you went into during the interview that I found particularly intriguing, he decided that when the United States ended the military draft, that caused American foreign policy to go downhill. Now, what does that cause and affect relationship say to you? Well, her point, when that, by I should point out, this book is thought to be the first comprehensive book written about American history by a woman. It's hard to believe that we've gone this long, but all comprehensive textbooks about American history have been written by men uh, up until this one. Jill Lepore is... Uh, his book does emphasize a fair bit of the things about women that were not emphasized in books written by men. In terms of uh, um, the, the 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 question you've asked, um, you know, she's uh, she's her, her basic point is that once men are no longer drafted, you don't have the middle class and the upper class worrying about whether their sons and daughters are going to be sent to, into war, and so you basically have people fighting wars who are relatively a uh, small part of our, our, our class uh, in, in the United States. Typically, if you look at the people who are now fighting our wars and people who are in our military, they tend to be people from, I would say, blue collar families or college, not college educated families. It's a very small subset of our population. And therefore you don't have everybody with uh, the same kind of a skin in the game as you did when we had a draft. I should point out as well that what Jill Lepore likes to emphasize is that we didn't in our histories before talk very much about women's roles in the history. And obviously there's women had enormous roles in history. They didn't get a lot of attention. In fact, when she went to a third grade class, she points out in the interview and she says to third graders, um, young girls, um, what did you think of the founding fathers? Oh, George Washington was great and Benjamin Franklin was great. And she said, well, what did you think about the women then? And they said, uh, one little girl said, well, they didn't have any women back then. Um, so, which tells you that, you know, children didn't really see much about what women were doing back in, in the colonial days or in, in lots of our history. Um, some little girls didn't even think there were women. 
Well, another one of her truths that I thought was interesting, as she said, the main purpose of the computer is to make predictions about our future. So, David, how do you think that's working? So are we getting better at predicting the future? Well, life is all about predicting the future. Um, you know, I'm writing a new book about investing. And when you think about it, investing is really predicting the future. Now, in all of our lives, we are always predicting the future. Is it good for me to go to school here because I can get a good job? Um, is this the person I should marry? What's the future going to bring? Uh, in the investing world, you have you you can gauge whether your your projections or predictions of the future are, are right by numbers, which are very uh, clear. The rest of other things we do in life, probably the projections are unclear as to whether you made the right or wrong decision in many cases. But computers are designed to facilitate certain types of decisions in advance. But obviously, we have lots of computers now, and we still make a lot of bad decisions. Uh, we've gone and fought a lot of wars we probably shouldn't have fought. We've done a lot of things in the country we probably shouldn't have done. But we had a lot of computers around to help people make these decisions. So it's not clear whether computers really make better decisions, but they give you uh, things that appear to be more definitive in terms of the outcome. Right. Now, your third interview is with Catherine Brakus, who's a professor at Harvard's Divinity School on the subject of religious freedom. And among the things that you covered with her was the increase in recent years in the number of Americans who now say, when they're asked, what's your religious preference, an increasing number say, none. So let's assume that the surge of the nuns continues. What impact do you think that's going to have on the American experiment? Well, interestingly, this country was set up by people who came from England in part so they could practice the religious, uh, their, their religion the way they wanted. It wasn't really set up to have, have religious freedom. They didn't really want religious freedom. They wanted to practice religion their way. And if people in their colonies didn't practice religion their way, they had to go to another colony. However, when we created the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we did say that the government should not sanction any one religion. Historically, the country has been relatively religious and people have really gone to synagogues or churches uh, relatively uh, faithfully. Uh, but as we have observed in Europe, Europe has basically seen an absence of people now going to church and the churches and religious institutions are more or less dying in Europe. Um, in the United States, not quite as bad as, as Europe in terms of attendance, but clearly many people are not as religious as they were uh, years ago in our country. And I don't know whether that trend will continue. Probably, uh, you know, surprisingly, like the churches are much stronger in other parts of the world than they are here. Uh, Latin America is a good example of religious attendance and, and identification with religion is much stronger in Latin America than it is in the United States. Whether that trend will continue or not, I don't know. I should have said this at the outset, but for our audience, to the extent uh, a question in your mind arises, please put it into the chat box. And uh, before the end of the hour, I'll, I'll do my best to ask as many as I can. Uh, David, uh, another intriguing interview uh, was with Donald Graham, the former publisher of the Washington Post, whose mother was his predecessor, Catherine Graham, and he discussed freedom of speech and freedom of the press in the Constitution's First Amendment. And during the interview, he told you about how during the Watergate nightmare in the 1970s, President Nixon undoubtedly tried to shut down the Washington Post, which of course was leading the charge of the investigation, uh, Messrs. Woodward, Bernstein, and Bradley, and of course, under the ultimate 
uh, authority of Catherine Graham. So, David, what what do you think, uh, as you look back, we've now had over 50 years, what was the Nixon presidency's impact on the American experiment? Well, clearly, uh, as a result of what happened in Watergate, uh, Jimmy Carter was elected and the country uh, tried to uh, distance itself from Richard Nixon. In hindsight, 50-some years later, Richard Nixon's crimes seem relatively modest compared to some of the things we've seen recently. I mean, okay, there was a break-in and he was trying to cover it up. Uh, in, in hindsight, his biggest mistake was not just doing what he did, but, but in the, not destroying the tapes. Uh, as you all may remember, some of you are too young to remember, he recorded um, every conversation in the White House because he was clumsy and he didn't know how to push buttons very well. It, the, the voices went on automatically, and sometimes he may have forgotten that the voices were being recorded. When this was made public, the Congress tried to get these tapes. He fought it. Ultimately, the Supreme Court sided with the Congress. Their tapes were released, and they showed he was involved in the cover-up. Had he destroyed the tapes on day one, as soon as it was revealed, saying national security was at stake, he would have been he would have survived in office for sure, because the country uh, more or less supported him. He did one overwhelmingly in 1972, but he, by keeping the tapes, and I can explain why he kept them, uh, he ultimately uh, uh, was, his, was his, un, his undoing. Um, today, those crimes seem so modest compared to what we often see now today. And the idea that he would not obey the Supreme Court when it ruled that he had to turn over the tapes was not on the table. As soon as the Supreme Court ruled that he had to turn over the tapes, he effectively did, and that was the end of his presidency, more or less. But I think that's uh, Don Graham's point was that uh, the, the the Washington Post was threatened with uh, revocation of its television licenses and other things, but Catherine Graham, the owner of the Post, really said we were going to go ahead and publish uh, the kind of things that they talked about in Watergate, and at great peril, uh, they did publish it, and ultimately, uh, they won a Pulitzer Prize for doing that. Now before we move on, uh, we have a question from uh, Sandy Kress in the audience. Do you think we've too much lost our attachment to the founding principles in recent years? If so, how and with what consequence? Do you feel a disconnect uh, that's surging uh, from the founding principles? Well, the founding principles are ones that on paper sounded wonderful. You know, all men are gonna be created equal and so forth and the, and the principles that we have in the constitution. But as we all know, you know, we've been struggling for some 200 plus years to kind of honor these promises in some ways. And uh, it's been an ongoing struggle. So I would say the rhetoric of the founding fathers was wonderful, but it really, you have to remember, it was only designed to apply to a limited number of people in the country. Uh, we had slavery at the time and nobody thought that slaves were entitled to any of these rights. So we've been evolving what these principles really apply to. So in many ways, we've expanded what they said by rhetoric, but their real intention was not to free slaves or to give women the right to vote. Think about it. No women, uh, no woman in the country could could vote until 1920, more or less, and uh, and that took you know more than 100 years to get that from the time we began the country. So we didn't really begin the country with as wonderful principles as we now think that we did. The rhetoric was good, but the reality was much different. Mm -hmm. Now, part two of your book is called Suffering and Sorrow. And you interviewed Harvard history professor and former president of Harvard, Drew Gilpin Faust, about his book, The Republic of Suffering, which is a book about the many gruesome aspects of death 
during the Civil War. David, why is that an important subject for people to know about in the 21st century? Well, it just was designed to remind people of um, what war is all about. And uh, what her book was really uh, designed to talk about is, is something we hadn't probably thought about and probably nobody here really thought about it. But during the Revolutionary War, uh, while people were killed, more people were killed by starvation or, 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 or weather elements. We didn't really kill people in quite the, we, the, the battles we saw later on in the Civil War. But we had a technique of doing wars in the 16 and 1700s, which is you had soldiers marching forward, shooting, and if they, the shot didn't work, they would then knife somebody. Well, when the Civil War came, the weapons were so much stronger that when you did that, you were lining up and just going into, you know, uh, marches into each other, you know, you're killing a lot of people. And then sometimes the people weren't killed, but they were damaged, they were hurt very much. And then the question is, how do you get these people off the battlefield and get them um, cured? There was no process for that. And in fact, um, there was a, ultimately, uh, if your loved one was killed on the battlefield, very often you'd have to hire somebody to go retrieve the, the body and, and try to bring it back and give it a de decent burial. In those days, it was believed that if you didn't die in a proper way, you wouldn't get to heaven or enjoy, enjoy uh, you know, your life after your death, which is so it's very important that you died a certain way and you died, you know, basically, um, you know, worshiping uh, God and saying your appropriate prayers. And many people wanted to believe that that's how their, their, uh, their children and, and grandchildren died. But uh, it was really a gruesome story about how we had to separate people. Union soldiers couldn't be buried with uh, Confederate soldiers. Whites couldn't be buried with blacks. Uh, officers couldn't be buried with, uh, with uh, enlisted people. It was a very unusual way to think about the war and just a different angle about the, how serious war is because when what war is really about is killing other people to some extent. And when you see this through the prism of the Civil War, you can then imagine how bad it was later on during World War I, World War II, and subsequent wars. You know, it just brings home how violent death can can come can be and how terrible it is for the family. So that was kind of the point of it, just to kind of remind people of the gruesomeness of war. Yeah, another interview in this section on suffering and sorrow is with Ken Burns discussing his documentary Vietnam. And one of Ken's conclusions in the interview is every American president who dealt with Vietnam, and of course we're talking about Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford, made all of their decisions about directing the war on the basis of how it would impact his chance of reelection. Had you realized that before you talked to Ken or watched the documentary? Well, I watched the documentary before I did the interview, and but Ken's main point is is this: that the presidents at that time, Eisenhower, Kennedy, uh, Nixon, and so forth, were, were and Ford were were determined, uh, and Johnson were determined not to uh, lose the war. They didn't want to be the first president who lost the war, though in fact we didn't exactly win the War of 1812, and it's hard to argue that we won the Korean War. Nonetheless, they didn't want to be blamed for losing a war. And so the documents that Ken unveiled show that the presidents and their top advisors knew that we could not win the war militarily. They knew that from the late 1950s, early 1960s, but they persisted in the idea because they thought politically it'd be difficult if we withdrew or we were seen as losing the war. So we lost 58,000 men and women and then hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese in the war uh, in an effort to kind of 
win a war when in fact we knew we couldn't quote win the war. It was not a pretty picture. Um, and all of us who lived through that remember at the time that we thought we didn't want to lose a war and we believe we could win or so many of us believe we could win. But in the end, the documents now show that the military knew we couldn't win the war militarily and was really a political exercise, unfortunately. Now, another one of Ken's conclusions when we talk about losing the war, he said, if you're going to have to name a president who lost the war, it was Nixon, because the at the time he came in, peace terms were on the table that ultimately were as, as good or better than what we ultimately settled for, and that if he'd taken those terms, we would have saved between 25 and 30,000 lives. To me, that was a surprising conclusion because the only reason we were in that situation was because of Lyndon Johnson's uh, escalation of it. Uh, do you agree with Ken that, it, that, that Nixon is more responsible for the, the bad outcome of Vietnam than Johnson? Well, there's a lot of blame to go around, but uh, Lyndon Johnson does deserve credit for trying to end the war. He was negotiating towards the end of his uh, term to, to end the war on terms that would have been pretty favorable. And it turns out that uh, Richard Nixon and his people were working with the, uh, the South Vietnamese saying, don't agree to this, I'll get you better terms. And in effect, uh, Johnson knew this. We had, uh, there were tapes of what Nixon was doing. I guess somebody had, the government had bugged Nixon. And so we knew that Nixon was basically trying to uh, keep the peace process from going forward because he thought it would hurt him politically and would help Hubert Humphrey in 1968. Johnson talked to Nixon about it and Nixon said, no, no, I'm not doing that. But in truth, Nixon was lying. He was trying to keep the war from being ended. So had Johnson been able to end the war then and Nixon not interfered, we would have uh, we would have ended the war much sooner. So that's one of the things that Ken Burns points out in the book, which is a sad situation. Yeah, now in the section of your book called Restoration and Repair, you interviewed David Blight about his Pulitzer winning biography of Frederick Douglass. And reading the interview, I was surprised to learn that Frederick Douglass's father was white, his second wife was white, he spent nine years as a fugitive slave, and that his last name was originally Bailey, but he changed it in hopes that he'd be less likely to be captured. So as you think about the effect of Frederick Douglass, whose popularity and, and historical impact seems to in, increase every year, where do you come out on the significance of, of Douglas in the American experiment? Well, for those who may not be that familiar with Frederick Douglass, and I can't say I was an expert on it, David Blight has devoted most of his life to writing about this period of time, and he wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning book about it, and that's what I interviewed him about. Frederick Douglass uh, was the most prominent African-American in our country's history until Martin Luther King, um, by far the most popular. He was also the most photographed person in our country's history, probably at that time, because he apparently liked to be photographed and people saw knew what he looked like. He was like many uh, slaves. Um, he was the product of uh, of a slave owner, um, uh, basically, uh, you know, having uh, you know a, a, an affair with uh, one of one of uh, his slaves, and uh, that was obviously we know from now history. Thomas Jefferson impregnated uh, Sally Hemings and had six children with her. It was a very common occurrence then, and Frederick Douglass was the product of, of that type of uh, arrangement. Um, he ultimately freed himself or, or, or escaped from slavery, became a great orator and a great uh, writer, which was surprising to many people because slaves were not allowed to learn how to write in those days. And many people didn't believe that a slave could be so articulate or write so well 
but ultimately uh, he, he proved himself to be an extremely influential person and became the first African-American to be confirmed by the Senate for any job. He was ultimately made the Marshal of the United States in the District of Columbia. But uh, incredible life. Um, I would say he had a lot of failings in his life, uh, but in the end, uh, he had an enormous amount of influence. And again, not until Martin Luther King came along was there any African-American anywhere close to uh, Frederick Douglass as a prominent African-American in the country. Well, you also interviewed Henry Louis Gates on Reconstruction, and Art Anthony in our audience wants to know your view on the impact of Reconstruction uh, after the Civil War, uh, which lasted about 20 years. Uh, and, and your interview with Gates is is fascinating, but uh, where do you, you know, we always think about the Civil War, we think about the Great Depression, we think about this, that. I don't know that people think about how important Reconstruction was right. To the American journey. Had Abraham Lincoln lived, uh, and he was assassinated by John Wilkes Booth in part because John Wilkes Booth, who never liked Lincoln and who was a white supremacist in today's terms, um, Lincoln had said or implied that maybe at some point some blacks who had fought for the uh, the, the Union uh, and as soldiers, maybe they would have the right to vote, and that really uh, set off John Wilkes Booth. Had Lincoln lived, Reconstruction probably would have worked a little bit better. The idea of Reconstruction was to um, right some of the wrongs of, uh, of the, of the pre-Civil War era and also to kind of restore life to the South. In the end, what happened is Andrew Johnson was not that sympathetic to, Lind to uh, Lincoln's views. And in the end, we basically restored uh, slavery in all but name because while we, we got rid of slavery in 1865, Reconstruction really produced Jim Crow laws and other kinds of um, laws that essentially made African-Americans of the South and other parts of the country, um, not slaves, but clearly second-class citizens. And so Reconstruction did not work. And it really, in the end, produced uh, enormous amounts of violence and enormous amounts of hatred and, and was a really uh, failed period of our, our country's history. Now, you also interviewed John Meacham on his recent biography of John Lewis, and I'm guessing that you knew John Lewis. You probably even interviewed him before he died. Meacham describes him as a, quote, saint, which Meacham defines as someone who's a little more virtuous than the rest of us. And he says that John Lewis was someone who aspired to bring about the kingdom of God on earth. Did you view John Lewis as a saint? Well, I was with uh, John Meacham last night in an event in Washington, and uh, he went through that description. It, basically, a saint means more or less that a uh, person has, um, you know, certain beliefs in in in, uh, in the gospel and um, and lives those beliefs and, and and so forth. And John Lewis was a deeply religious person who believed that ultimately he would go to what he called the beloved country or uh, or, or heaven, in effect, if he followed those religious principles. And so before he was a member of Congress for 30 years, he was a civil rights leader. He was the youngest person to speak at the March in Washington, August of 1963, only 23 years old. Uh, ultimately, he was uh, in, in effect kicked out of the leadership of the civil rights movement by Stokely Carmichael, who ultimately became the head of the uh, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. And for many years, uh, uh, John Lewis, who many people now revere, kind of wandered around trying to find a, a, something to do with his life he was in the Carter administration, but not in a very significant position relative to uh, the positions he later held. John Lewis was a uh, man who was seen as the conscience of Congress, very moral, very religious. Uh, 
And um, sadly, he died of pancreatic cancer last year. And John Meacham had interviewed him for about a year or so before his death and therefore got a pretty good insights into what made John Lewis tick. And his book is all about John Lewis's time as a civil rights leader, which was very, very early in his life, uh, in his 20s. For the rest of his life, he was really doing other things. Well, Meacham says that John Lewis showed what religious faith can do in politics, although Meacham did not in the book uh, go into it all, Lewis is 33 years as a congressman. So does that mean that religious faith can have an impact in politics only when it's not actually involved in the process of government? Well, John Lewis had written a book about his life, and, and in that book, a lot of what he did in Congress was there. So John Meacham wanted to cover different things, and he just thought that John John Meacham is also a very you know religious person, and 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 and, and I think he was more interested in the religious aspects of John Lewis's life than the political aspects of it. So that's why he didn't cover that part of his life. Now in the section of your book on invention and ingenuity, you interviewed Doug Brinkley on his book, American Moonshot, about the space race in the 1960s. And Doug defined a moonshot as, quote, a long range goal that seems to be out of reach. David, in 2021, do you think the United States has a moonshot goal? Well, I don't know if we have anything quite like that moonshot. That was a goal that John Kennedy set. It was one that his advisors told him was ridiculous because we didn't have the technological capability to get to the moon by the end of the decade. But Kennedy didn't really care about that. He saw that as a political goal, really, to kind of beat the Soviets at something we thought we could beat them at. And ultimately, we, we did do that, although he didn't live to see it. Today, I'd say we don't have any technology kind of thing quite like that. Clearly, there's some people who want to go to Mars and go back to, to, to uh, the moon. But it's a very different experiment uh, than, than, than the John Kennedy's pledge to go to the moon. Interestingly, when we did go to the moon, the computing power was less on, that, on the moon uh, uh, rocket ship and on the, uh, the capsule than you have in your iPhone. Your iPhone has much greater computer power than anything that they had in those days. And it's amazing that they, they pulled it off when you think about it. And interestingly, if we wanted to go back to the moon today, we couldn't do it. Why? Because the technology experiment experience that we have, those people are, have died or retired and they're gone. And we don't really have the, the capabilities to get back there. We can get back there for sure, but it would probably take a few years because we've lost so much because we've basically been out of the moon business for a long time. So it's interesting how you can have this technology, you can go to the moon successfully, and now we kind of, we really couldn't go to the moon to, tomorrow if we wanted to. It would take many years for us to get back there to be able to do that. I was trading text with Doug Brinkley right before we started the interview, and he said, David Rubenstein is the most brilliant person I know. So I wanted you to get that compliment from Doug. Uh, no. Now, in the section of your book called Creation and Culture, you interviewed Billie Jean King, and I think it may be my favorite interview in the book. And you ask her one of your famous David Rubenstein's semi-off-the-wall questions, quote, before pro tennis players serve, why do they bounce the ball so many times? <laughs> so to get, yes. to get inside your process, does a question like that occur to you on the spot, or do you think of this as you're planning in advance the interview? I do try to think of the questions in advance if I can, but sometimes on the spot, you know, you know, you listen to somebody. As you know, 
Uh, Oprah Winfrey said she's not a great interviewer. She's a great listener. And to be a good interviewer, you have to listen to what somebody says and then play off of it. So if somebody says something, you know, if you can quick, quickly come up with something that might respond to it, it makes the interview interesting. Um, by the way, why do people bounce the ball so much? Um, it's just a nervous habit, honestly. It doesn't make the ball any better. Uh, there's no rhyme or reason to it, at least that's, that's what she said. The reason I interviewed her is because she was not only a great athlete, there are plenty of great athletes, but she did two things that other people hadn't done as great athletes. She fought very hard to make women get equal rights in the tennis world, and therefore they got equal pay and so forth. That was a very big uh, change. And secondly, she came out of the closet, so-called, and became uh, known and, and said to people she was a lesbian at a time when that was thought to be the end of one's career, certainly for an athlete. And uh, and she fought through and fought for equal rights as and fought for uh, you know quality for people of different sexual preferences. And that was fairly heroic at the time. Now it's not considered such an unusual thing, but in those days it was quite quite uh, uh, unusual for an athlete to do that. Well, in fact, she answered that question about why do they bounce the ball so many times. She said, "Quote: The players are finding an inner rhythm inside their souls." And I, I love that answer. That was terrific. Uh, she also made some other points. Uh, uh, she said she. Uh, prefers doubles to singles because she likes collaboration. She said almost all uh, pro tennis players like instant replay because it reduces a player's anxiety. Uh, she said whenever she was facing a tough opponent, she was never thinking about, am I better than that person? She was just thinking about the next shot. And she said she doesn't think about her achievement. She just thinks, I'm not done yet. I mean, that to me is the greatest answer I ever heard. I'm sure you get it a lot. I get a lot. People our age. When are you going to retire? Answer, I'm not done yet. But was there anything about the interview with Billie Jean King that, that surprised you? Well, I would say um, I didn't really know her that well um, and at the time. And, and she's very forthcoming and didn't hold back anything. And I would say uh, one of the most amazing things about her, and you have to remember this, uh, most tennis players in those days came from white-collar upper-income backgrounds. It was because you learn tennis typically at country clubs. She came from a blue-collar background, and she struggled to get the money to her lessons and overcame all that and ultimately uh, became the greatest uh, women's tennis player of her time and probably one of the best of all time. But when, when history is written, she'll be met, remembered more uh, for her uh, fighting for equal rights for women than she will for, uh, for her tennis abilities, as good as they were. Well, another one of my favorite interviews uh, is with Cal Ripken. And of course, you talked at length about the, his consecutive game streak and it's quite a picture you painted in the interview. On the day that he decided to end the streak, his Orioles were about to play the New York Yankees. So tell the story about how Derek Jeter and his teammates responded. So for those who are not baseball fans, you, the, one of the records that was thought to be unbeatable was uh, Lou Gehrig's uh, record of 2,130 games in a row. And ultimately, as we now know, Lou Gehrig had to step down because he had what was later diagnosed as ALS, and uh, that was the end of his streak. But it was, uh, I think, 11-year streak. Um, Cal Ripken played for 17 years without basically missing a game or even an inning. He played every inning. He didn't just play a couple innings and then and then just rest. 
And then ultimately, after he broke the record and had more than 500 games, more than uh, than uh, Lou Gehrig had done, he realized that maybe it was becoming too much of a burden and people were spending all the time on the on the streak and when's it going to end, when's it going to end. So one day he went to the manager and said, okay, I think this is it. So when the, the Orioles took the field against the Yankees, they saw that no Cal Ripken. And then the Yankees didn't realize what was going on. Where's Cal Ripken? He'd been there for 17 years in a row. And then finally it dawned on them that he was saying, um, I'm not doing it anymore. And then the Yankees went out and they applauded him and standing ovations because people realized he had decided voluntarily to end this incredible streak. And then one of the reasons I, and, and uh, Talmadge, you're obviously a baseball aficionado and I've read your uh, your books on it. Um, you know a lot more about baseball than I do, uh, but you certainly recognize that in today's uh, day and age, it's hard to find baseball heroes who have no blemishes. Um, Cal Ripken had no enhancements of drugs or anything like that. No, uh, you know, inappropriate personal behavior. He was basically what you know, an old-fashioned hero that little boys and little girls could look up to and say, "This man is really a great person," and he was. And I've gotten to know him in recent years. He's a very, very nice person and very modest, unassuming. And, you know, if you run into him in the street, you wouldn't realize he was one of the greatest baseball players of all time. He doesn't talk about it so much. He talks about other things. Well, during the interview, Ripken explained that baseball is, quote, cerebral. And that's why it moves at such a slow pace. Though, obviously, the slow pace of baseball has created major problems in recent years. It's impacted its television viewing. And David, I know of your strong interest in baseball. Are you optimistic as to whether anything can be done to speed up the game? Well, they've tried to speed it up with certain uh, uh, rules about how long you can take in between you know, pitches and so forth. Uh, the pro- one of the problems, honestly, and you would recognize this, is ball- baseball is a game of statistics. People obsessed about the statistics. So if statistics were not such an obsession, you could speed up the game by saying, look, we're going we're gonna to play it differently. We're going to have uh, two strikes rather than three strikes. We'll have three balls rather than four balls. Uh, we'll play seven innings rather than nine innings. But because people like to compare people with the past and so forth, the statistics will get all confusing to people. But there are many ways they could do it. To be realistic about it, I think the only thing they're going to probably do is, is uh, not let people um, waste as much time between pitches and, and not let the batters kind of spend as much time you know, um, you know, between between uh, uh, pitches and kind of getting ready for the pitch and so forth. But I think in the end, we should recognize while baseball has gone down in popularity, has gone down in popularity, it's not the nation's pastime quite the way it was. More people go watch Major League Baseball every year in stadiums than watch NFL football or NBA basketball because there's so many games and you still see people, you know, going in 40,000, 50,000 people per game if it's a really big, important game. It's just the season's so long it, it sometimes seems that in the early season when people aren't going that much, the game isn't that popular. Television ratings are down as well. One of the problems that television ratings have had is that the baseball audience is aging. It's people like Talmadge and me who, who <laughs> are going, and young kids are not going. They want to go to basketball games or other things. So we need to get younger people to go out there. And also there's been a problem in, in race. At one point, 25% of the Major League Baseball players were black. And that drew a lot of uh, black spectators. Now it's about 8%. And therefore, you have a correspondingly smaller percentage of black um, uh, people going to the games. Uh, 25% or more of the players are Latino. And while that's great for uh, 
you know, Latino uh, fans and so forth, it doesn't tend to draw as many white or black people to the games as it, it used to be the case when you had so many you know, people like Cal Ripken or Mickey Mantle and so forth. So there's lots of reasons for it. But in the end, baseball is going to survive everybody on this call, I think. And the final section of the book on becoming and belonging, you interviewed Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and she talked about her thrill uh, over becoming a federal judge and leaving the, the daily uh, life of a lawyer behind. And you ask her another one of your famous David Rubenstein questions. Did you tell your mom how low a judge's compensation is? <laughs> yes. Well, uh, I love that. But uh, she did talk about the difficulty in explaining to her parents why she was doing it. Uh, talk about she, along with everybody else, who's a high powered lawyer uh, who makes the decision to become a judge. What what sacrifices involved? Sonia Sotomayor is a woman, uh, Puerto Rican descent, who won the, the, the prize as a Princeton undergraduate, as the best undergraduate student, and was on the Yale Law Journal, and uh, was a very accomplished lawyer, making a, a great deal of money by normal human standards. And then she decided to go on the bench because she wanted to give back to society. Uh, the uh, compensation, though, was much less than she was making before, and telling her mother was uh, a bit of a challenge, I, I think because her mother measured success by money to some extent. It reminds me of the story of the Librarian of Congress. The current Librarian of Congress, African-American woman from Baltimore, Carla Hayden, was the librarian of Baltimore for 22 years. And she was appointed by President Obama to be the Librarian of Congress. But And she didn't want to tell her mother that the job pays as Librarian of Congress half of what she was making as Librarian of Baltimore. So she never really wanted to bring that up because her mother, again, measured success by how much money she was making. And uh, the Library of Congress job is uh, is capped at a very modest salary. But, you know, some sometimes uh, you don't want to tell your parents some of the details about uh, how much money you're making because they might not be as impressed as you'd like them to be with the job you have. But Sonia Sotomayor is a woman who has diabetes and, you know, takes an insulin shot every day. She's had a lot of other health challenges, but I, I think as been a great symbol to people of the Latino community, uh, being the first Latino uh, on the Supreme Court. Well, one of your 13 genes is the rule of law. And uh, a member of our audience wants you to uh, answer this question. Do you think there's been an erosion of the rule of law, specifically related to the political independence of our Justice Department? Well, I dedicate the book to public servants who protect our democracy. And what I was really saying is I really applaud the judges that in the events around the post-election uh, episodes, uh, I think stood for the rule of law. Clearly, though, the country does believe uh, in a large, to a large extent that the Justice Department is political. In the Trump administration, you saw uh, many actions that seem to be political, and now many things that the current Justice Department is doing are seen by Republicans as being very political. Uh, the most recent one is the uh, is the indictment of uh, of Steve Bannon is seen by many people as political because it was it was a, you know a Trump ally and so forth. I, I, that's unfortunate because uh, it, when the rule of law is so important, we have this in this country, and when people don't believe the rule of law is is really being honored and we are really being political about the way we enforce the laws, I think the country is in, in very bad shape. So I am very concerned about that, and I don't know how to solve that problem anytime soon. 
basically the problem we have in Washington today is it used to be that people would come together and they'd work out some bipartisan legislation and, you know, not always popular with every side, but basically it was bipartisan. Now, both sides don't talk to each other more or less. And it's basically 100% my way or or the highway. And it's a sad situation. I wish it would be corrected, but I don't see it being corrected anytime soon. Another question from the audience comes from Gary Ward, who's with uh, one of our sponsors, Security National Bank. He says, David, in predicting the future, what do you see for our personal liberties in this country in the next 25 to 50 years? As I read Gary's question, you know, you think about cancel culture, you think about uh, people being deprived of uh, freedom of speech. Where, where do you see this going? Well, right now, the country is very bitterly divided. And, um, you know, Congress really reflects the country. The country is pretty bitterly divided right down the middle. And everybody wants 100% of their view uh, on, on things. And I, compromise isn't considered to be an appropriate way to conduct uh, governmental policy anymore, unfortunately. So I, I can't predict 25 years in advance or 50 years in advance. But I'd say over the next couple of years, um, the basic human rights and freedoms that we have in our country guaranteed by the Constitution and Bill of Rights, I don't think are going to be taken away. But I do think more and more things that are done by government will be looked at through a political prism. I, I interviewed Justice Breyer recently, and he has a book out talking about how justices are really apolitical and they shouldn't be seen as politicians. But most people don't believe that. Most people believe, uh, certainly when decisions like Bush v. Gore and others, that the justices are political and they just have black robes on, but they're more political than, than sometimes members of Congress. The justices don't believe that, but unfortunately, uh, many people in the country do. And when people think the judges are, are political, it, it really evades and it kind of uh, uh, destroys the belief in the rule of law and how important it is. Yes. Now, in your introduction, you talk on the one hand about how most people, most Americans regard this the greatest country in the, in the world. One of your 13 is the American dream. Uh, but you also talk about how uh, so many of our hopes and dreams have, have not come to pass. Obviously, a lot of issues involving uh, race uh, over the years. Uh, a member of our audience uh, has asked, in your opinion, if you were going to put a grade on how we've done in the American experiment over the course of the 230 to 250 years, what kind of grade do you think we now have and, 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 and what direction is it trending? Well, I would say uh, a B plus because we survived 250 years. No other country's done that with one basic document, which has only been amended 27 times, 17 since the Bill of Rights. So that you know, is unusual. Uh, we became the most powerful country in the world, economically, politically, technically, and, and militarily. So that's an incredible thing. Uh, but I do think the country right now is uh, at war with itself, not as bad as a civil war, but is at war with itself. And, and the, neither side seems willing to compromise. And we have political figures who don't seem to be encouraging compromise. If you are encouraging any kind of compromise, you're kind of written out of your own party. So in many ways, it's discouraging. Um, but I, I do think the, you know, the U.S. will survive. I just don't think it will be quite as um, enlightening as we would all like it to be. And I would say a B plus trending down, not a B plus trending up. Ugh. We have a few minutes left and uh, I've never really gone deep into your process uh, in terms of how you prepare for an interview. So let's pull one of your interviews out of the book. Wynton Marsalis, what did you do to prepare to interview Wynton Marsalis? 
Well, when I'm interviewing somebody, if they've written a book uh, recently, I will always read the book. And he had a book on uh, jazz, so I read the book. And then I, I have uh, a researcher that will do all the uh, internet researching, which will dig up all the articles written about the person and then read all the interviews that that person has done. And then what I do is I write up questions that I want to ask the person. Um, and I typically send the questions to them, uh, telling them, though, that I'm, I'm not going to read from this. I'll kind of use this as a guide um, so I have the flexibility to add some questions. I don't like to surprise people with uh, embarrassing questions. So I have these questions you would say off the wall, like how many times you bounce the ball, but none of them are designed to embarrass anybody. You know, I'm not uh, Mike Wallace or I'm 60 Minutes or anything like that. And I've tried to make it an enjoyable experience for people, but I try to read as much as I can. Obviously, you do the same thing. You you, you clearly read the book. Um, and I just think it's a courtesy when you're interviewing somebody about their book to read it if you possibly can. The problem is sometimes uh, authors write books that are a thousand pages. And I'm interviewing one author soon who's written about a thousand page book. And I'm trying to say, can I get through this thousand page book before I do the interview? And Or do I have to go find the Cliff Notes version of it? Um, so um, it's a challenge. I, I sometimes think that the publishers are now paying their authors by the word because the books are getting bigger and bigger. I don't know whether people are reading all these things, but the, the books are getting heavier and heavier. Well, when you're when when it's uh, showtime, whether you're on television, the David Rubenstein show, or doing programs in front of live audiences, I don't think I've ever seen you use a note. So do you just put all together well, what you want to cover, and and you've got it wired, and you don't need notes. I, I don't use notes for this reason, and when I give a speech, I don't use a, a text. Um, uh, the reason is uh, when I do an interview, I'd like it to be a conversation. And I think it's, it's it's distracting a bit when you're looking down because if you have notes in front of you, it tends to be a prop and 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 you'll look down and your your eye contact against the person you're interviewing will, will be destroyed for a, a moment or so. And also I think it, it looks better to the audience if you're just having a conversation than an interrogation. But I, and I also recognize that my memory is, is reasonably good you know, maybe it's going to be failing in, in a few years or so. But right now I can, you know, if I, I prepare 50 questions, I can remember 45 of them. And uh, and then so if I forget five or so, nobody will know but but me. But it, it's not that challenging. I actually, a couple of times people have interviewed me. And I say, look, get rid of those notes, throw them away. And I'll take the notes away from them. And they then conduct the interview and they realize later that they did better with them with, when, they, when they had the notes. So I'm encouraging people to get rid of the notes because they probably don't need it. Well, uh, I appreciate that. I want to tell everybody in the audience that uh, David has now written three terrific books of interviews. His first one, all of them bestsellers, The American Story, his interviews with, with leading historians, which really opens up history. His second, How to Lead, Wisdom from the World's Greatest CEOs, Founders, and Game Changers, which is terrific for anybody who's interested in leadership. And then the new one, the American Experiment, Dialogues on the Dream that we've just been talking about. Uh, David, I have a new question from the audience. <clears throat> Obviously, you're committed to books. What do you think is the future of book publishing uh, and reading of uh, uh, books? Well, sadly, uh, people think reading is reading a tweet or reading an Internet uh, line of one or two words or so. Um, I, I think uh, the book publishing business is not a profitable business by and large compared to other businesses. As we now know, um, there's a fewer and fewer book publishers. And I suspect in the end, it's probably going to be get down to a world of self-publishing more than going to uh, the few big publishers that are left. 
Um, people don't read as much as they should, uh, in my view. Fifty uh, percent of American families have not bought a book in the last fifty years, uh, last five years, or read a book. Fifty percent of American families have not bought a book or been in a bookstore in the last five years, and thirty percent of college graduates haven't read a book since they graduated from college. So books have a tendency to focus your brain. It it's, it's harder to read a book than a, than a newspaper article. It takes more time to focus. But I think focusing and getting through a book is really a good intellectual experience. And I hope we don't, uh, we don't destroy that by letting people think that when they read a, a tweet or something, that's the same as really reading a book. Well, that's wonderful, David. Uh, I don't know how long you're going to be in Dallas. If you have any extra time, I hope you'll call me. I'd love to see you in person as opposed to virtually, but we very much appreciate you're giving us an hour. The book is terrific. We've really Thank enjoyed you. our time together. Thanks a lot. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate it. I hope to see you all in person sometime soon. Thank you all. Bye. David Rubenstein is one of the most brilliant and influential people in the country, and it's always a treat to speak with him. We've now done programs on all three of his books. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford Bowen McKinley & Norton. Thanks for listening.